So this morning we'll be reading from Acts chapter 1. You'll see just in the first bit there, it says in the first book, uh, the author of Acts is Luke. And of course, he also wrote uh, the gospel. So this is his uh, uh, second uh, book to Theopolis. So uh, listen as we read God's word this morning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olvet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphesus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John 
until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Basabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thanks, Andrew. Now, friends, keep your Bibles open. Let's, um, let's ask God to help us as we reflect on his word together this morning. Gracious God, thanks so much for um, all that you have done to bring us into your family, to save us from our sin, to give us life eternal. Thank you, Father, for your spirit that so works in us, that we might know you, the true God. Help us now as we uh, reflect on your word, give us understanding so that we might trust and obey you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I've got to admit that I'm not really, uh, there's nothing too notable that I've ever been an eyewitness to. I'm not sure about you. I've witnessed a couple of unpleasant things, like a woman being hit by a car, a couple of other things that I won't elaborate on. Um, on a brighter note, I was at the SCG uh, for a famous match, not Sydney Sixers beating uh, Perth Scorchers last night. Um, and anyway, no one under 45 will probably remember it anyway, but where Michael Bevan single-handedly won a one-day match against Sri Lanka on the last ball of the innings. It was spectacular. But one person, there you go. For you, Andrew, I got that illustration. Uh, and of course, I'm an eyewitness to the uh, 2020 COVID pandemic, uh, as are you. But in the end, my eyewitness accounts aren't that spectacular. You know, I wasn't there to see the Berlin Wall come down. Uh, I was too young to witness John F. Kennedy being shot uh, or hear Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream. Uh, and even though I saw the images of the Twin Towers crumbling in a terrorist attack and I heard the reports, I wasn't an eyewitness. But just because I wasn't yet born or wasn't there to see or hear those events of history doesn't mean I can't know about them. They're big events with big impacts upon our world. Uh, and there were some who witnessed them firsthand and reported on them. Now, in the biggest scheme of things, uh, my eyewitness accounts are actually fairly mundane and minor, minor, right? But that is not the case, not the case for the apostles. Uh, they were witnesses of some incredible things. Now, before we look at some of those things, it's worth being clear about this issue of witnesses. Uh, most people know what a witness is, but sometimes Christians just think when we talk about witness, we're just talking about evangelizing, right? But witnesses are those who tell what they've seen or heard what they've witnessed. Uh, and the apostles of Jesus heard and saw some incredible things. They witnessed some events of history. Okay, if you haven't already, uh, make sure your Bibles are open there to chapter one, uh, straight after John's gospel, Acts chapter one, verse one. Let me just remind you how it kicks off again. Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we saw last week that the first section of Acts chapter 1 was a recap of the last chapter of Luke's gospel. 
Uh, it connects Acts to Luke's gospel as the second of two volumes that Luke wrote, as Andrew's just reminded us. Uh, Luke's gospel is his historical account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts, of course, is the account of Jesus' continuing work here on earth through his chosen apostles. In other words, what he does now and how. Now, the apostles had seen almost everything that Jesus did and taught. They were eyewitnesses. Uh, they had heard his parables. Uh, his teaching about God's kingdom, his disputes with the religious leaders, his private teaching with them. That they'd also seen his miracles, you know, his feeding of the 5,000, his healing the sick and the lame, his control over nature, his concern for the poor, the despised and the oppressed. Now, they saw his love and compassion, his kindness, his generosity, his mercy, his acceptance. And they also saw his anger and at injustice and evil. But they also saw what had happened to him, how he had been betrayed by Judas, how he was unjustly tried, how he was exposed to public ridicule and shame, and how he was tortured and nailed to a wooden cross to die, all the while asking the father, his father, to forgive his killers as they did it. But amazingly, that's not even all they saw and heard. Because Luke reminds us right here that they also saw and heard the resurrected Jesus. See what he says there in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1? Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I mean, the, the apostles were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. They, that is, they saw him alive after his death over a 40-day period. He presented them, himself to them alive, he says, by many proofs. Now, he's not talking about scientific proof, of course. He's talking about convincing demonstrations. Uh, he demonstrated to them that he was alive. And the word translated proof here in Acts refers to the kind of evidence that is conclusive. They were convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead because the evidence before them led to that conclusion. The risen Jesus was not just kind of a figment of their imagination. He wasn't the kind of desperate wishes for someone that they'd loved and lost. Nor was he just a spirit or a ghost. I mean, the apostles and others, of course, we see in 1 Corinthians 500, others were convinced that he was the bodily resurrected Jesus, which is actually what he promised would happen. Now, one of the proofs uh, we see in Luke 24 is Jesus actually meeting with them and actually eating with them, sitting down and eating with them. He was alive. They knew it. They were witnesses to the fact. But it's not only the incredible, it's not the only incredible event that they witnessed. Because have a look again from verse 9 there in Acts chapter 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So following the resurrection, the apostles knew that they could expect anything. But the sight of Jesus actually being taken up into a, into a cloud is, is such a startling one that you would never forget it. People who have witnessed major historic events like September 11, for example, 
They testify to, to never being able to forget what they saw and their lives never being the same as a result. And so the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of his father in heaven is a completely different kind of event, but the effect on those who saw it was much the same. They could neither forget what they saw, nor would their lives be the same. The ascension was about uh, God's ultimate declaration that Jesus, in fact, was Lord, that he was the king over God's kingdom. Jesus had finished his work on earth and he is restored by the Father to his rightful place. And yet, as we see in Acts, his work is not finished on earth, is it? And just like the resurrection, they had seen him taken up in a cloud. They were eyewitnesses to that event. And the question is, why did Jesus show himself to these people, these apostles whom he had chosen, as verse 2 calls them? Well, Luke makes the purpose clear in verse 8, that they might be his witnesses. And one of the key things the apostles were to witness to was the resurrection. And yet the resurrection came to a climax in the ascension. And so as we work our way through this book of Acts together, we're going to see that it's both the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that were the critical features of the apostles witnessing. They were truths of such importance that they were willing to die for them. Now, these were historical events with massive consequences. And perhaps we sometimes can forget that reality. I mean, the COVID pandemic, September 11, World War II, the Reformation under Martin Luther, they're all historic events that have had massive consequences for our world. However, the events of Acts chapter 1 are no less historical. And the consequences are even greater. In fact, the reality is that Jesus was teaching about history. Uh, the events witnessed by the disciples were critical events in God's purposes for the history of our world. And that's because they were events that actually fulfilled God's promises about his kingdom and advanced its coming. And so there's a historic background, which I think we need to remember, and a, an historic context to what is happening here at the beginning of Acts. And the story of the Bible, uh, in a sense, has both a, a macro, a big picture, and a micro a small view of history as we read it. Uh, from that big picture macro perspective, we know that since shortly after God created the world, the entire world, humankind have lived in rebellion against their creator, even if they expressed it in different ways. That's the big picture that we see in, in the Bible. But from a micro perspective, from the smaller story that we see in the Bible, as we read through the Old Testament, we see the account of how God has acted in history to restore those who will turn from their rebellion and turn to him as their creator and ruler. And it's a small view because it's actually played out in the history of one nation, the nation of Israel. God chose Israel. You know, the mighty Greek empire had Alexander as their ruler. Uh, the glorious Roman empire had Caesar as their ruler. But Israel would be ruled by God's king. And yet, as privileged as they were to have that reality, the Bible records that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, failed miserably to be God's representative kingdom here on earth. Uh, their kings rebelled against God. Uh, their priests rebelled. Their people rebelled, not all of them, of course. But Israel fell into obscurity under God's judgment. And yet they lived, as we read the Bible, we see that they lived 
with the promise and the expectation that God would restore Israel and that he would appoint his king, his Messiah, his Christ, who would rule forever and not just over Israel, but he would come and rule forever now over every nation and every people on earth. And so God had promised that his kingdom would come and the time was coming. And so when Jesus arrives and he announces the good news of the kingdom, he says the kingdom is near when Jesus comes. He proclaimed that in both Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 8, you'll see it again and again. Even the Lord's prayer that he teaches them to pray teaches the coming of the kingdom and our need to pray for it to come. But when and how is God's kingdom then going to come? You know, when we think of the powerful nations of the world today, or in, in any time that we can think of through history, it's normally about their military power and their leadership, right? That's how they rule the world. But Ezekiel, in chapters 36 and 37, paints an amazing picture of the arrival of God's kingdom. And the key feature is about God pouring out his spirit on his people. And so the arrival of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, would coincide with the arrival of the kingdom of God. So have a quick look with me then from Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Now in verse 3, Jesus has been speaking to the disciples about the kingdom. And, whilst, and verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's not a bad question for them to ask. I mean, the resurrected Jesus tells them that they're about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And their reaction is to ask, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? In other words, as the resurrected Messiah, the Christ, Will Jesus now bring down the curtain of history, restore Israel to a rightful place and reign over all of creation? That's what they're asking. It's the right question. It's just the wrong time. See verse seven. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But we do like to have the time, don't we? We like to know the time. If only we knew when the Lord Jesus would return, we could be ready, couldn't we? If we knew when he was going to come back. But Jesus makes it clear that the timing is not what we should be distracted by. That's God's prerogative. Jesus makes it clear that there is more work yet to be done. See verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But it's not merely human work, is it? Rather, notice what he said, it's spirit-empowered witness. The effect of the Spirit's coming will be to empower the church in its witness to Jesus. So here's the answer to the how question. How is it going to happen? God's kingdom continues to advance through the witness of the apostles and the church, not by military power or strategy. You know, at one level, the arrival of God's kingdom was fulfilled by the Spirit's coming. Uh, However, the Bible makes it clear that we still await the final rule of God's kingdom when Jesus Christ returns. Now, what that means is that we live in a fairly ambiguous phase of history to some degree. That is, the reality that you and I live in is kind of like two overlapping phases of history. I've tried to uh, demonstrate it on the screen for you so you can see it there. But 
from the beginning of the world, when humanity turned against God, we have been living in the age of rebellion, where humanity as a whole has rebelled against God. It's an age of injustice and suffering and death and poverty and evil. But God had made a great promise that he was going to restore his world and he sends Jesus. And when Jesus comes and dies and rises again in the sense of the Father, uh, the coming of the kingdom of God has arrived, has broken into our world. And the kingdom of God, we, we're told, is going to be marked by, by the, the work of God's spirit, by justice and health and wealth and life. And yet we don't see that today, do we? We don't see it in all, that, all those things happening in the way that we would hope would be the case. And that is because we live between two ages. The age of rebellion has not yet finished. It doesn't finish until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But the kingdom of God has come. And it is advancing as we witness to Jesus. This is what we call, we live in the age of witness, where God wants everyone to be saved, to hear the good news of Jesus to come to faith in him. And so according to God's history of the world, that is where we live. But the witness of the apostles and of the church after them is a supernatural activity. Uh, it's, it's no ordinary witness. They and we are what we would call spiritual witnesses. Now, the odd account, can I say, of the choosing of Matthias towards the end of the chapter, uh, Matthias to be the 12th man, uh, reminds us that this is not just a human task, right? Uh, the Apostle Peter tells the small group of followers that Judas, who betrayed Jesus, needed to be replaced in order to fulfill Scripture. And let me just pick it up from verse 21 there. He says, So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Of course, the story continues that two men are chosen, Matthias and Joseph, and they pray and they ask Jesus to choose one of the men to replace Judas as a witness. And so they cast lots and Matthias is chosen. Now, some people wonder why this particular story is here. Why do they need a replacement? Um, does the method they use mean that we should cast lots today to determine God's will? What can I say first? By uh, restoring the group to 12 apostles, it actually shows the connection with the Old Testament people of God represented by the 12 tribes of Israel. And then secondly, God's chosen group of witnesses, uh, well, so God that completes his witnesses. But secondly, in terms of casting lots to determine God's mind, this is the last instance of that kind of thing recorded in scripture. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because the spirit hadn't yet come. And Jesus had promised that the spirit would reveal the truth to and through his apostles. And so with the arrival of God's spirit, speaking now through the apostles, it's no longer necessary to seek God's guidance in other ways. However, the Matthias story illustrates, I think, that there's more to being a witness. Uh, there's more to being a witness to Jesus. That is, Matthias, remember, as we reflect on it, Matthias was already a witness to Jesus. He'd been there right from the very beginning. And yet he was chosen to become an eyewitness. Now, clearly, there was more to it than just seeing. He was more than simply a witness. He was a chosen witness. And Jesus chose him along with the other apostles, and they would be sealed on the day of Pentecost as spiritual witnesses. 
And so in the meantime, before that happens, notice Jesus tells them to wait, wait, because their witness would be powerless until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, we cannot understand the things of God unless the Spirit of God reveals them. We're kind of understand, to understand here, unless the Spirit gives us spiritual understanding and insight. Try opening up any history textbook, for example, and finding an entry under resurrection or ascension. Now, understandably, they don't write a mention in any human reconstruction of history. And that's because you have to have the Spirit to understand God's plan of history. Now, if we're going to understand our mission from Jesus, there are at least three critical things that we need to be clear about as a church. That is, firstly, we need to understand how people can meet Jesus today. Acts, the book of Acts shows us that the way we meet Jesus is in the apostolic witness. So it's the way that Jesus set up for future generations to meet him. So if you want to meet Jesus, if you want to get to know Jesus, if you want a personal relationship with Jesus, then you need to start reading the scriptures, the Bible. And you need to keep reading them. Why? Well, because the scriptures are where the apostles, uh, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, where it's recorded. That is what we have in the New Testament. It also means that if we want to introduce other people to Jesus, we need to use the scriptures. Well, secondly, we need to understand that our mission from Jesus is not merely a human undertaking. Investigating Christianity, investigating Jesus, is not just a historical inquiry, it must also be spiritual. It didn't matter how urgent the task was. Remember, the disciples were not to begin their ministry without the Holy Spirit. It's actually the Spirit who gives insight to and understanding of God's word and understanding of the apostles' witness. And so it's the Spirit who interprets the words and actions of Jesus in the hearts and minds of those who hear them. And so if we want to see God's kingdom grow, if we want to see his kingdom grow in our community here, then we'd be foolish to imagine that we could make it happen by our own clever strategies and wise application of business principles or even just hard work. I mean, Jesus may have ascended into heaven, but he continues to rule and to direct his church from there and he provides the resources that we need for his mission through the Holy Spirit. And so that, that leads us, therefore, naturally to the third and final thing that we need to understand. That is, we need to understand the central importance of prayer. You know what strikes me about this point? It's that prayer is actually probably the easiest thing that we could ever do in ministry and one of the most important things we could ever do in ministry. But it's the very thing that we are least likely to be found doing, I think. Now, we can pray almost anywhere, anytime. We can do it in bed before we sleep or when we wake on the way to work, at morning tea, lunchtime, when we exercise. We can set aside special times for it. We can spend a few brief moments or a, a considerable time doing it and anywhere in between. We, we normally don't have to go anywhere to do it. And the preparation time is minimal. We can, however, and it is a good thing, isn't it? Meet together with others to do it. We can do it with one other person. We can do it with hundreds of other people. See, praying with others is a great thing for us to be doing. The disciples devoted themselves to prayer. That is, they persisted in it. And they prayed with one accord. 
That is, they were united in their prayers, agreeing together in what they prayed about and what they prayed for. The fact that God had already promised the things that they prayed about wasn't a deterrent to prayer. It was actually an incentive to pray. God had promised to give them what they now prayed for. And their praying was expressing their confident trust in his promises to them. And so we've no reason to expect that God should give us those things that he's never promised us. But we should pray consistently and confidently for those things that he has promised to give us. Friends, what we do together as a church is not merely a human activity. It's fundamentally spiritual. The church must witness to Jesus in the power of his spirit. And we need to pray for that to happen, that God would do that work in us so that we would want to come before him and pray, trusting his promises and asking him to do what he's promised to do. So why don't we pray now? Our gracious God, you have promised that the message of the gospel will continue to spread throughout this world, transforming lives, bringing people from darkness to life. Father, we thank you that the gospel, as we see it spread throughout the book of Acts, will be a great encouragement to us. We can sometimes feel a little bit like that has all stopped. The word is no longer powerful. Father, help us to stop thinking what is not true. Help us to trust and believe what you've always said, that your word is powerful to save and that you call us to be your witnesses, to tell people of Jesus and all of his great deeds. We pray, Lord God, that you might continue to strengthen our faith, embolden our witness, give us confidence in the work of your spirit through your word to do its work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.